Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie, and I am your host once again, honored and excited by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show comes to you from my elaborate studio in my sumptuous Las Vegas balcony. I'm here in the hottest city in the world. And as I sit outside and enjoy a nice, temperate, slightly breezy day, very refreshing, you may occasionally hear a bird chirp in the background. And at some point along the road that goes at the end of my community there, somebody may decide to demonstrate that they really do have rear-wheel drive and their tires can make chirpy noises. But think about it. Where are you when you have those mastermind conversations that change your life? They happen in coffee shops, cigar shops, the the networking function after the seminar. Are you at an outdoor cafe? Are you at the park? Are you driving? I encourage you to get out your pad of paper and two pens so you can capture those aha moments that will move you toward that slight edge that enables you to thrive and serve from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and enjoy being out in the wild, so to speak. I'm very dedicated to my laptop lifestyle and I'm coming to you from my laptop as I introduce today's topic, which is about choosing a human-centric approach to selling, even in the time of WFH. I can't wait to find out what WFH stands for. What I'm very excited to do, however, is introduce you to our guest. His name is Glenn Pulos, and let me tell you about him. He's the co-founder, vice president, and general manager of Gap Wireless Incorporated, which is a leading distributor for the mobile broadband infrastructure market with over three days Excuse me, with over, I'm so excited here, over three decades of experience in sales, he has developed a successful belief and strategy system by spending thousands of dollars in the field. Well, you are spending thousands of dollars when you're doing this, spending thousands of hours in the field or on the phone with customers and working with salespeople in several successful companies. So before I have another verbal trip, let me just tell you that Glenn is the author of an exciting book, which I'm going to be getting a copy of myself called Never Sit in the Lobby, 57 Winning Sales Factors to Grow a Business and Build a Career Selling. So we are ready to get started. Glenn Pulos, come on in. The weather's fine. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. Absolutely. So I just read off your official bio and I was so in awe that I kept messing up the words. And in fact, I'm not worth, sure I'm worthy to be here, and this is my show. So <laughs> what I'd like to do first, and we do this on every episode, is it is my belief that quoting Bob Berg, or paraphrasing Bob Berg, people do business with people they know, like, and trust. I add to that and say the key factor is that people do business with people. They don't do business with sales scripts. They don't do business with presentations. They don't do business with catchy phrases, and buzzwords. They do business with people. And there's not that much new under the sun these days. No matter what you do, somebody else does it as well. And if you're in a sales situation and it's you and your competitor, and there's really not a lot of differentiation between the bullet points of your offer and your competitor's offer, the deciding factor could be the personality factor. I've seen this happen time and time again. Many of my own clients I've attracted, not because I'm better or worse than anybody else at what I do, but simply because of something that existed between me and that prospect that didn't even have anything to do with business. So what I'd like to do, Glenn, is turn it over to you for just a moment. Tell us a bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. 
Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Awesome uh, introduction, et cetera. Um, and I want to comment that you're, uh, you're sitting on your balcony in Las Vegas uh, where it's nice and warm. I'm, today I'm in uh, Toronto, and uh, w- this is that peculiar week in Toronto that happens every year where it's the week after you accidentally take off your snow tires one week early, and uh, uh-huh. <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> and so it's like, no, it's definitely time to take the snow tires off, put the summer rims on and uh and then of course we get a giant dump a few days later and you're uh you're sliding around right so but it's getting better today it's and uh and there's and there's warm weather coming so uh you know yeah. and in some and sometimes we like to say if you don't like the weather wait five minutes right so <laughs> yeah um yeah so uh yeah so i do i uh i work uh you know i have a company that i incidentally that I actually sold last in February, a few weeks ago, after 15 years, myself and my business partner, um, we built the business from the ground up and uh, a company called Gap Wireless. And uh, we had a successful liquidity event on February 4th of 2022. And we, uh, we did, of course, roll in as they often make the founders do uh, for a three, three to five year uh, timeframe, you know, to help um, build the uh, the larger uh, enterprise that they're that they're planning on building, and uh, so it was a private equity uh, company essentially that bought our company, and um, yeah, so that was an exciting finish to 15 years. And I will also say the 15 years that preceded that, I had a, a company doing pretty much the exact same thing, which I started. If you do the math, do all the 15s minus, you'll, you'll find out that I started that first company um, uh, in a bedroom in 1991 when I was 29 and a half years old. And um, I ran that company f- with a couple of other partners for about 13 and a half years. And we were then acquired by a public company. And um, we had, at that point, we had thought we'd sort of died and went to heaven in terms of, um, you know, the... Uh, uh, our net worth and what have you, but a lot of it was tied up in shares. And it turned out our private company, our public company partner was not, uh, not the best choice. And to make a long story short, uh, 18 months after that transaction, um, they, uh, they pushed our company, our division of the public company into receivership and a hundred of us lost our jobs. And I had, a, I was faced with the dilemma of either filling out a resume and uh, after 15 years of working for myself or starting another company. And so I started Gap Wireless. And um, as I like to say, the, uh, I started with my initials G and P and I bought a vowel, uh, picked the first one that came along, which was A, I came up with Gap, Gap Wireless. And uh, a week after the sort of the demise of one, I had started over. And 15 years after that, I had a second liquidity event. And this time, uh, we picked much better partners and uh, I'm sure it's going to be a much more successful enterprise. So, you know, that's kind of a little bit of a mouthful on how I got here. Um, so I'll just take a breath and see if you have any questions so far. And Well, first I have an observation. I spent the first part of my life south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When I was in my college era, I had a 1988 Chevrolet Camaro. It was red, even though I wanted a purple Camaro, but it's what I had. And it was used. And there was some damage to the paint on the hood. I believe it was oxidation or something, but essentially it had little white spots on it. I went to an auto parts store and I found this red wax that I thought or was told to me was going to help to mitigate that to the point where it would make my car look at least three years newer. So there was one really warm April evening that I applied this wax and I did it at night by spotlight so that I could even do the waxing without having to deal with the effects of the sun and the glare and how it distorts the wax when you're putting it on. I buffed that thing to a shine that it just glowed in the spotlight and I could not wait to see it. The next day, I woke up the next morning. There were five inches of freaking snow <laughs> that would not been in the forecast. Yeah, <laughs> and I was denied my moment. I hear you. Yeah, that ha- that happens here. We, yeah, 
Yeah, I also I had also just got my car detailed after the tires too. By the way, uh-huh. yeah. So I know I know exactly what you're talking about. So yeah, those temperate climates. I would I would rather bake than deal with it candidly. Right, and that's yeah. that's what you do here in Las Vegas. About four or five months out of the year, the sidewalks actually by the temperature numbers are hotter than those coals that people walk on at Tony Robbins events. <laughs> Ma- measured measured by actual right. devices. Right. They say that the hot coals at those types of events are like 500 degrees, but they're really not. They're about 150 degrees. Yeah, you can. And there's and there's a reason why most people walk on them without getting any injuries whatsoever. Here's the secret. You keep walking. Right. You don't stop. You walk briskly. Think about if you're walking on a hot sidewalk without shoes. What do you do? If you just keep walking briskly, you're not going to get burned. That's right. Where people and- get where people get injured on the hot coals is when halfway through their firewalk they say, "Ooh, I got to take a selfie and post it on Instagram." Well, yeah, you're going to get <laughs> fried because your skin can resist 150 degrees for a couple seconds, not for a minute. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that- yeah, we deal with that in Las Vegas, and you don't hear a lot of stories about people getting burned just walking to their car. The, yeah, the pavement can get qu- quite, quite hot there. I mean, we have yeah. like, a, we have three days a, a year in, uh, you know, in my area where it gets that hot, but, uh, you know, we have some pretty hot days in the summer, but, um, but actually, and that's definitely my, uh, uh, my favorite type of climate is where it's hot. And um, so I think that's my Greek heritage coming out in me. And, uh, uh-huh. but um, yeah, I definitely like the warm weather. So well, come by and visit sometime. Now, definitely. You, now you have a few things that you wanted to discuss with us. I had a really interesting uh, pregame conversation with you in the mm-hmm. green room, so I know that some of the things we're going to discuss include the art of face to face, something you call emotional motivation, and when it's time to stop compromising. That third one, I'm really curious about. Although I'm curious about all three, but first of all, I do want to ask what you mean when you say WFH. I know it doesn't mean WTF. <laughs> yeah, I know it comes out starting to sound like that when you say it, but no, yeah, that was just a short form of recent uh, in recent days called work from home. And uh-huh. um, all my, you know, I have a lot of salespeople that work for my company and uh, I talk to lots of people that have salespeople, you know, um, right now I'm running my business, so I don't do a lot of coaching at the moment, but I've done all sorts of uh, public speaking and uh, some consulting to other companies on sales, sales teams and approaches and what have you. And um, for, for in my business that I'm in, in the, and the world that I come from, I come from a world where the sales are done face to face. There's outside salespeople. We're selling high ticket technology items. And I mean, it doesn't really matter what they are. I mean, you know, um, the, uh, the, but they, but to give some specificity to it, um, we sell instruments, uh, measuring instruments that engineers use to measure electronic signals. They're called electronic measuring instruments. And we also sell wireless infrastructure products. So when you look up on, when your cell phone signal giving you five bars and you can see a cell site, you know, in view, we're selling all those products up on the tower. That's, we sell all those products and those, those products are not things that are sold on the internet. It's not a, you know, they're not a downloadable product. It's not to say that we don't have an, you know, uh, we don't put incredible time and effort into our online presence. Um, you know, we have a, we have a team that works on our social media presence and our, you know, our LinkedIn, um, you know, and creating content for the internet for uh, as thought leaders and what have you, but all of our true sales are done by making sales calls. And so during the pandemic, imagine I had these salespeople, they were all outside salespeople that would get in their car every day and they would visit customers. It's not door knocking. You're, you're making appointments, you're visiting customers, you're setting up trials and, you know, showing them the latest and greatest instruments and technology and trying to get them to try them out and uh, work them into their budgets and then buy it. <clears throat> but it was all done face to face. And then all of a sudden on March 20th, 2020, at least, uh, you know, in my geography where I am specifically, yeah. it was like everybody go home. And, um, it was like a shock and, um, uh, you know, it was, uh, fortunately our, our, uh, our, our accounting system and everything at work, we on in 2019, we had gone paperless. So I was able to quickly go up my laptops and send the, you know, the accounting staff and all them home and the salespeople went home. I mean, they, and they would, 
you know, often work from home as well. They weren't really in the office because they're outside salespeople. And, uh, but all of a sudden they could no longer do what they do, which was set up appointments and go and see customers. And they had to try to, um, you know, stay and be relevant um, from home. And, and a lot of people thought, okay, well, this is my new forever reality, but, you know, I realized that this was just a moment in time and that eventually we'd be back in front of these customers. So um, my philosophy and my thesis are not about um, that new work from home that was created in March, 2020, but rather how to get them back in front of customers now and what they were doing for the 20 years before March, you know, or right. whatever, whatever number of years they were in the field. So, um, you know, the, and a, a lot of people, you know, are very familiar with things like digital selling and, you know, stuff like that. And a lot of the rules and, and um, that I, that I suggest to people can be followed, whether you're an online or an, or a face-to-face salesperson. I mean, they're universal concepts of, of, uh, of humanity, but I mean, my true audience is the, some is a guy that or a girl that has to go and see a customer. Right. And yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what WFH is. And <clears throat> my book really is just a, it's just essentially a group of rules and mistakes that I made over 30 years and what I did to correct them. And um, you know, and how I go about trying to avoid mistakes in the future and repeat, um, you know, patterns uh, again that I found to work for myself. And a lot of them might come across sort of one by one as very sort of second nature. But when you, when you hear them, when you hear them cycled together in a row, you realize that it's a, it's a repeatable process that if you have the discipline, it actually changes your, the game for you. And it can really give you a leg up. Right. And, um, you know, starting with the title, right. Never sit in the lobby. People are like, what do you mean? Never sit in the lobby. And, um, and they meet. And, and so a couple of people said to me, do you mean like sit in your car? And I'm like, no, uh. I mean, don't <laughs> sit in the lobby when you're in the lobby. I mean, like when you're in the lobby, you know, ask for the person or phone them nowadays, you're usually phoning them from, from a phone. Right. Cause they don't, they don't, most companies don't pay for a receptionist anymore. Right. You know, and then there's a chair and a phone and a, you know, three magazines and what have you and a coffee table. And most people nowadays, their inclination would be to sit down, pull out their phone, look at Facebook, you know, text their wife, you know, um, and be otherwise engaged and distracted and, um, you know, or maybe calling other customers, you know, or that kind of a thing. My very first rule is never sit in the lobby. And um, so be standing in the lobby, phone away, things, you know, not engaged, waiting. And so that when that person walks through the door, uh, you're ready, waiting to look them square in the eye. You're standing at the same level that they're standing at. They're not looking down on you from, you know, with a three foot advantage while you're sitting and they're standing towering over you Yeah, and, and say hello, you know, and give them a handshake and, um, you know, say nice to meet you or good to see you again. Right. And, um, right. you know, that's sort of, the, that's the beginning. Right. And, you know, and then there's 56 more things that I try to instill in people, um, either to do or not to do. Right. And, um, yeah. yeah, so. Absolutely. Now I've written articles about the whole phenomenon of being zoomed out and I can only imagine what it feels like for somebody who's day in and day out is sales to have to sit on zoom calls with their prospects. Here's part of the issue with being with modalities like zoom, Microsoft teams, or what have you, or Skype, FaceTime, Anything that involves video conversation. When you look into the window, when you're on one of these types of softwares, what do you see of the other person? You see that they're facing straight at you and you can see their head, their shoulders, and maybe down to approximately the top of their solar plexus. Let's compare that. Let's say, Glenn, you came to Las Vegas or I go to Toronto, which could happen. I have friends there. Let's say that we're in the same place at the same time, and we decide we're going to meet up. Chances are we're going to meet up at one of these places that I mentioned at the beginning of our interview here, where we have those mastermind conversations that profoundly change our lives. We might be sitting at a table. We might be in a tavern somewhere, and we have a nice table that's actually up against the wall where we can face out and see the crowd and everything that's going on. We may not be 
facing directly toward each other is in the way we're sitting. We could also be in a lounge. We could be sitting on a couch next to each other. That's another thing that could happen. Or we could be in chairs at a 90 degree angle. So we don't have that constant staring each other down. We may be having the conversation while we're looking around. There may be natural pauses in our conversation that could involve, yes, we both take that cue oh, let's take the 30 seconds, see what's new with our, see if we have any new deals on our text or anything, and then we'll get back to the conversation. Fair enough. Now, let's say that I ask you a question like how to make your emails and voicemails count, which we're going to get to in a second. And you want to think about your answer for a second. If we were doing this through video chat and you pause and thought about it, you might look around Maybe you want to pull up some notes on it so that you get it right, even though you've said it a thousand times. And I'm thinking, what's he doing looking around? He's not looking at me. He's distracted. Right. And if you pause for a minute, within five seconds, like, uh, Glenn, are you there? Did you hear me? Pop, 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 mic check. But if we're sitting next to each other, what might you do? You might lean back in the chair a little bit. If your legs are crossed, you might uncross them or vice versa might steeple your hands and interlace your fingers as you tilt your head up a little bit and look out into the world room as you think. And when you do these things, I actually relax because you're sending me through your nonverbals a signal that you've got something really good for me. You just want 30 seconds to compose your thoughts. And in an interpersonal conversation, all that stuff is normal and we often don't even think about it. And a video conferencing type situation. Now you have all the impacts of the internet and you're literally cut off from the nonverbal and body language loops that are an essential part of conversation. So what do we do about that? Other than get in the lobby, standing up, of course, and uh, meet people in person. That's my philosophy. I totally yeah. agree with you. All right. Um, yeah. And the, and the other thing about Zoom as well is that people are Zoomed out in the sense that they were sick of Zoom. Like, I don't want any more Zoom calls today. Yeah. And, and they have a lot of uh, visual real estate on their screens. Everyone now has two monitors because they need more sp- screen space. Uh-huh. And, you know, the Zoom, the Zoom or Teams window is just one right dead center. And then on the left and the right of it is the email and other, other kinds of uh, messaging and, and things that are popping up and sending notifications and distracting either maybe the person you're talking to or the other people that should be paying attention and aren't. And so it's, but when you're in the lobby standing there uh, establishing initial rapport and then waiting to move to a meeting room or whatever, I mean, they don't have their laptop open and they're not, you know, quickly answering instant messages from their staff. Right. And yeah. uh so there's so many distractions with uh, with that method as well. That uh, and it doesn't cater well to the kind of products that we sell either. Yeah. So. Right now you're on a book tour. I've seen a few of your other interviews uh, promoting this excellent book, "Never Sit in the Lobby," the title of your book. And uh, and I noticed that in many cases they happen to be video type interviews. The Business Creators Radio Show is audio only because that's how we started back in 2013. Podcasts were originally an audio modality. We call them podcasts as an allusion to the iPod, which was a device that came out going on 20 years ago that opened up the door to a new form of marketing and communication, as opposed to simply writing blog posts and sharing your message through the written word. The iPod made it convenient, easy, and fun for people to listen to the spoken word. They could take this tiny little device anywhere and they could listen to articles. They could listen to books that otherwise they were forced to read. The video thing to me is a bastardization, but you want to know the real reason why the business creators radio show is audio only. There are two reasons. A, we did surveys and inquiries of our listeners and found out that a majority of them stream our episodes while they're doing something else. The number one is driving. Number two is jogging. Number three is in the background while doing something else. So they don't need to see it to begin with. Number two, I just don't want to. I sometimes do three of these interviews a day and I 
I don't want to hold a media pose for three hours. I don't No, 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 just no. And going back to when we meet people in person, we have in-person communications. You're not holding a media pose aimed directly at the other person the whole time. In fact, if you did, it might get in the way of your communication. It might feel more like an interrogation or a hot seat than an actual flowing conversation. So let's get to this thing about emails and voicemails. Yeah. Yeah, this, is, this, is some, this is something I love. And I'm going to go back 20 years just to illustrate this is nothing new. 20 years ago, I, uh, had, I worked for a company and my supervisor was frequently out in the field attending meetings. It was part of his job. Uh, it would, uh, had to do with community relations. So he attended a lot of community and networking type meetings on behalf of the company's their representative. And he tried to tell me one day that he had done an analysis and determined that whenever he called in, when he was out in the field, I only answered my phone 33% of the time. Now, first, I, and I was getting to the point where I was getting ready to move on from that job. So I said, I, I at the point had the courage to say, you know what? No, you didn't. I've seen you try and handle three and a half floppy disks. You did not create a detailed spreadsheet of your attempts to call me. That didn't happen first off. Second, <laughs> second, if I'm answering the phone 33% of the time, where's my raise? <laughs> even, because even then, even then, we were already seeing a trend that has gone to so many different levels today. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, so this, this is all rough numbers, but I'm still going to make my point. Consider the fact that millennials, Gen X, you know, Gen Ys, Gen Zs, what have you, are now the majority of the workplace. And these are people who were raised with technology that Gen Xers like me and upwards simply do not have access to. So the idea of voicemails and voice communication was already phasing out to a degree. They're used to the idea of texting as messaging, using messenger, using inboxes, things like that. So I saw a study that shows that if you call somebody at their business line, that there is approximately a 75% chance unless the call is scheduled. If it's not a scheduled call, there's a 75% chance they won't answer the phone live, even if they're not really doing anything that would stop them from answering the phone live, and even if they read the ID and know it's you. Furthermore, there's a similar number of folks, particularly in the, young, in the younger cohorts, that indicate that they don't even listen to their voicemail anymore. So if Glenn Pulos calls and they recognize his number and they see uh, a minute later, they get the little beep or the little light that says Glenn left a voicemail, how are they going to respond to you? Well, they're going to say, okay, well, I can text Glenn or, the, or I'll find him on LinkedIn and they'll type, Glenn, saw you called, what's up? So with all that going on, what do we do to make our emails and voicemails count, considering that the former are now so important and the latter often don't even get listened to? So it's okay if I jump in? Oh, no, oh, no, there, there we go. The momentary pause while you think about it. See, in interpersonal communication, face-to-face, yeah. -face, you would have been leaning back thinking, huh, interesting thought. You might have even had that little nod you were making as you were processing that in your brain. If we were staring at each other in video, I'd be starting to wonder, wait, are you frozen or is lips still moving? <laughs> yeah. and, yet here in, and yet here in audio, I heard you shuffling a paper. Yeah. And so I knew that you were processing something. And I can hear that very faint, almost imperceptible little buzz that shows that there is a live call going on. So please tell us all about it. And if you want to prove me wrong, go right ahead. Awesome. The, um, so the, <clears throat> I'm going to, I'd like to start with the, um, one of the horror stories, right. And, uh, cause it, you know, in 30 years of running, running your own company, et cetera, it's obviously not for anyone. Is it a, you know, bed of roses and, uh, everything runs perfectly and nothing yeah. ever goes wrong. Right. I mean, obviously I wouldn't have had to start a second company if everything went perfectly the first time. Right. Sure. And, uh, but, in the first company, I learned a very harsh lesson. I talk about it in the book and I tell the story quite honestly and openly. The only thing that I change is the name of the person that told me uh, about the screw up, right? And he came to me one day and um, 
he basically was asking me for some help on a, a technical project or something. I don't remember the exact context, but he, you know, we were, we were sort of blathering on about it or whatever. And at some point I just said to him, I said, okay, well, you know, go off and do your thing come back. And if you have any issues, you know, give me a call. If I'm not there, if I'm not on my desk, just leave me a message. Right. And he, and he kind of like, kind of like, guffawed at me like you know a laugh you know the kind of laugh i describe in the book whereas if you had a drink in your mouth you'd spit it you would have spit it on me right yeah and i'm like excuse me like what are you laughing at like what's so funny right and uh and you know he's kind of looking at me kind of questioning you know and then i'm like what's what are you laughing at right and he said um he's and essentially he said you know like can i tell you a story and you won't shoot the messenger and um you know and I'm like, look, just spit it out. Tell me what you're trying to tell me what you're trying to tell me. And he said, well, I guess you don't know the joke. Like, you don't know the 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 inside joke. And I'm like, what's that? And he said, like, well, you know, the the joke is, is that, you know, if you if you want to get a hold of Glenn, you know, leave him a voicemail. Ha ha. Because he'll, because the reality was, was that people were leaving me a voicemail and I never phoned them back. And, you know, um, like I said, I don't, I didn't have a flaw free, flawless error free career, right? At that point in my career, um, you know, I had actually just gone through a divorce and I had lots of things pulling at my, you know, uh, you know, my mojo, let's call it. Right. And I mean, I wasn't my normal, you know, uh, as we call it in sales filled with piss and vinegar kind of self. Right. And, um, and so I was actually sort of hiding from the world. And, and so one of the ways I was doing it was not returning voicemails. And it, it became an inside joke into the team, right? Which was like the only way they could really get a hold of me because I wasn't taking the call. I was letting it go to voicemail and I wasn't listening to the voicemails or phoning them back. So they literally had to walk over to my office and find me there and then talk to me, right? And um, it, it really shook me to my core. And, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, in the beginning, it was a hard story to tell, but it was, and it was a hard story to hear, right? Um, I have a saying sometimes with salespeople that I use, I go like, there's something I, you know, I need to tell you. And I go, it's going to be really hard for me to say, but it's going to be even harder for you to hear. And, um, you know, and, and that was one of those moments for me where, and when I, it wasn't that much long after until that company had closed down and we all had to go find new jobs that I made a commitment. And one of many commitments to myself about the new business was that one was that if I could answer the phone, I would, if you phoned me and left a voicemail for a valid reason, I would phone you back. I mean, you know, um, there are certain types of phone calls that don't, just don't warrant a phone call back. But if a bona fide right. salesman calls me for a bona fide reason, or for instance, let's say some salesman for a logistics calls me about freight rates for containers from China. I mean, I don't care, but my logistics guy does. I'll pass the voicemail to the guy in logistics. Right. And, um, and he'll call the guy back. And, um, but you know, I, but the, the, you know, that was one of those like defining moments for me about voicemails and emails and what have you. And that, you know, your behavior sets a tone, which each, all people measure you by, and you became, you become known for, right? Like you said, some people, 75% of the time, they don't answer the phone. Well, that guy, that girl, whoever it is, they become the person that, you know, 75% of the time won't answer your call. And, and so, you know, at least you can work around it and, um, and work that into your methods, but also you have to remember, know as a person, um, you know, how, how people are going to judge you. Right. And, uh, yeah. so, uh, it is even possible today, uh, in Toronto, you know, it's after five, so it's probably won't happen, but I have the system here called the failover. And if you phone, um, our, our office, I mean, we now have enough people would have you that we had to put in an automated attendant and, you know, some people, uh, you know, they, they, they go around to extension to extension, trying, you know, sales for this and try to go here and there and they get kind of frustrated and then they just go zero, zero, zero. And they just hit that. Right. If anyone does that, they come straight to me. And if anyone fails over twice um, to, um, uh, to other staff members, it also comes to me. And of course, if I can pick up the phone, I always do, like I said, and if I can't, they leave a message, I phone them back. And, and after, you know, and there's certain times where people are asking me questions and what have you. And, you know, 
uh, they might say something and I'll say, well, you know, you've got the owner on the phone. They're like, what, you know? And I'm, I'm like, no, I mean, we value your business and um, you know, picking up the phone is, is one of the first ways we show you about, about doing business with gap wireless and um, you know, and that we're easy to do business with. Right. So right. that's, that's just the story and, uh, and how I, how I learned and developed from it. Um, <clears throat> you know, some of the things about, uh, about emails, the, um, you know, I and in the it's hard for me on the on a, a sort of on a podcast to like uh, word for word give the examples that are in the book, but um, you know, I actually script them out in terms of um, you know how I've learned over the years to strip away all this sort of nonsense, right? And and a lot of times I phone the guy seventy five percent of the time he doesn't answer the phone, so I leave a voicemail and I leave it for I leave a voicemail with exactly twenty to thirty seconds, never less, never more. Um, the reason why is because short voicemails, if that beep that you just heard, if that comes within like, say, five to 15 seconds of, of the call, I realize that it's some sort of spam and nobody leaves 15 second voicemails, right? Um, and so, um, or if I recognize that it's Bob from such and such, then I just call Bob back, right? And uh, he might say, it's Bob, give me a call. But most salespeople, what have you, are, if they're leaving a bona fide message, it's going to have to take more than 15 seconds. And so- Anything shorter than that, I wouldn't respond to. And if it's like two minutes long, I delete it. And uh, that kind of a thing, because someone's blathering on and they, and they need to learn through experience on how to properly communicate. And I'm not going to listen to an entire two minute message, right? I'll, if, I right. Can, if I pick up enough in the first 20 seconds to 30 seconds, I'll phone you back or, uh, you know. Or it's just delete 77, as I call it, right? That's the code on my phone to delete the voice yeah. that I'm listening to, right? And and so I leave a 20 to 30 second message. And I usually start with a challenge, you know, like, you know, you know, we've been, we've been, uh, we've been saving companies like yours, you know, 20 to 30% on uh, production times or, you know, some kind of a compelling message, you know, and I was calling to see about getting a few minutes on your schedule to, uh, you know, to work with you on it, right? And I, I have examples in the book that uh, with covering different types of industries and from software to hardware to tow motors and how you can, how you can, how you can adapt these messages to your own um, style. And and you know, and then the moment I leave the voicemail, I then follow up with an email, right? And again, I start with the 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 I try to make it compelling and. Um, you know, what's in it for them to answer my phone call the next time or call me back. Right. And that's really the purpose. I don't provide like a three paragraph with, with customer testimonials of how great my stuff is. And, you know, it's like, you know, we've been, we've been saving factory floors, you know, 20 to 30% on fuel costs using our new advanced tow motor. And I'd like to, you know, I'd like to get some time on your schedule to, uh, you know, to show you our latest, our, our latest unit. I mean, I don't sell tow motors, but that's a good example, right? Yeah. And, um, and it becomes a series, you know, you voicemail 20 to 30 seconds. Next time, he, then he sees the email. Then you tell him you're going to call him back in four days. You call him back in four days. If he wants to talk to you, he'll pick up the phone. If not, he may then be inclined to phone you back or send you an email and say, look, you know what? Call Bob, the production manager. I'm, I don't care about tow motors, Right. And, um, and so, you know, that's the, uh, you know, that's the, one of the, one of the concepts around emails that I talk about in the, in the book. The other thing is, of course, the, my rule, one of my 57 factors is always check emails, right? So I only send emails to the people that are involved in the conversation. I don't unnecessarily copy people. If somebody, oh, yes. Thank God. Absolutely. Uh-huh. If, it, if anyone, uh, you know, if I'm adding, um, like if I may need to add a boss for some reason or whatever, they go in the carbon copy. The only person that goes in the two line is a person that has an action. If there's two people in the, in the two line, then I would address it to both people. I never start an email. I never will send you an email that doesn't start with your name, comma, hi, Uh your name, hey, your name, comma, your name, comma, never, not your name. I don't just start blathering on and, you know, because people are, are, are unpro- not unprofessional, but they're, um, sorry, the word's escaping me, but, you know, so there's a hyper casual 
in their email communications. And I don't believe that that's the format. If you're texting me, I'm not going to go, dear John, you know, well, please find attached, you know, such and such or what have you. Uh, as, email, my, as my, my previous text. Blah, 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 <laughs> right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I feel an email, every, an email deserves a salutation. It should be addressed to the person who has an action. If they don't have an action, but need to be copied, they should be in the CC. And I should only expect that they will receive the email and nothing more. If they have an action, they should be in the two line and I should spell out their action in the email. Keep the email short. If it's more than a paragraph, then you're already using the wrong method. You should actually be phoning them. And really what you should be doing is making an appointment and going and seeing them, right? Because again, our people, uh, you know, the first chapter in my book is never fax the facts and never ship the shit. And um, (laughs) I definitely have to read it now. (laughs) <laughs> and of course, one guy gets me, he goes, you need to update your book. Nobody uses a fax machine anymore. I'm like, dude, read the chapter. I mean, like, I'm basically saying don't electronically transmit things because you're too scared to go visit your customers. I mean, I don't care if you use text message, WhatsApp, you know, Instagram and email, you know, smoke signals or, uh, you know, a fax machine, right? I don't care what the method is. Don't use them to transmit things like proposals and such other than for, for posterity, if you're presenting, you know, if you're selling someone a hundred thousand dollar instrument or what have you, the very first present, you should be presenting the first quote and what have you in person. And a lot of people will argue me on this point and all people won't see you. And, and again, I have lots of examples in the book on, on how I get in the front door and how I position it, you know, and um, you know, like I'll, I'll call the customer and they'll say, I'll send me a quote and I'll say, Sure. And I'll say, they'll say, uh, I'll say, I'm going to be in your, in your building or in your, in the area on Tuesday. Can I drop it off? And they're like, well, I'm too busy. Just email it. And I'm like, well, I'd love to, I can email it, but I'll be there. Can I just, I'll just leave it in the lobby for you. Is that okay? And he's like, okay, fine. Leave it in the lobby, but I'm busy. And I'm like, okay, no problem. So I go to the lobby, right? And of course, in the old days, I talk about bringing a box of sugary donuts and, you know, getting the receptionist on your side. And nowadays, you know, again, mostly you're, you're just phoning from the lobby. And so I'll go to the lobby and what have you, and I'll pick up the phone. I'll say, Hey, Bob, I'm in the lobby. I brought that quote you asked for. And most of the time they're going to think, well, the guy drove here. I, you know, he's not going to leave it in the lobby. I'll just come and get it. Right. So, all right, I'll pop down and get the quote, blah, blah, blah. I need five minutes. So fine. Well, guess what I do? I stand in the lobby. I don't sit down, never sit in the lobby. Right. Right. The guy comes down. I've got the quote ready open. And one of my rules, something in your hand, something in your mind. So I've got something to talk to him about. And I have the quote in my hand. Right. Yeah. I present him the folder with the quote and the data sheet open. I make sure that he can see the price. And I say, here, have a, have a quick glance at it. Any thoughts on, you know, on the investment or the price there at the, you know, any first reactions I can get from you if he starts sweating bullets or uh, smiling or gives me some kind of body language. I know I'm too high, too low, totally out to lunch. Maybe he doesn't even want to buy my product and he just needs a second quote, but I can discover a million things in that 10 seconds of him coming to the lobby. Right. And if he's a new customer um, while I'm standing there or what have you, I say, look, while I'm here, I give him one of my other rules, which is always ask for a mini tour. And, uh, and everyone's like, what do you mean a mini tour? Like, why won't you just have a tour? Right. And I'm like, because a tour is a complicated thing. You know, like if you think of a tour of a city and you're in the bus for three hours and this guy talking and blathering on and a mini tour is small, right? It's a manageable thing. I'll say just mini tour. I'd love to see that new lab you're working on the production area, the factory floor, it doesn't matter whatever my, you know, whatever I'm selling, whatever's appropriate. I'll ask for a mini tour of that area, you know, and eight times out of 10, nine times out of 10, they'll take you down. They'll show it to you quickly unless they can't for, for whatever reason. Now, all of a sudden I'm in their building and behind the closed doors and they're walking me towards their area. And then some more of my rules start flowing out. Right. So yeah. then my, my next rule was never forget a face. So what he doesn't realize is before I stood in the lobby with his quote, I was also scanning my phone, looking at the other people that I knew in his building, like that worked there that I'd met before. And I put their name in my contact system. And while I was in my car, I ran through them, you know, Sally. Oh yeah. That's that lady with the red hair, you know, Bob, you know, that's the heavyset dude. Right. You know, and then Jack, 
Oh, right. That's the young guy in engineering, right? And I get these names. I put the face to the name and I bring it back from my really deep and, and long-term storage memory. And I bring it to the front of my memory, right? To the front of mind. And so that when I'm walking down the hall, if I see any of them, I can be like, hey, Sally, hey, Bob, hey, Jack. And they're like, wait a minute, who's that guy again? And some of them uh-huh. remember me right away, but none of them say, hey, Glenn. And I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, um, 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 you know, oh, oh, oh. And of course, they're already halfway down the hall. And I finally remember, oh, yeah, that's Sally. Right. And I want to, you know, but it's too late to yell her name. She knows I've forgotten her. And so I've made an in, I've made a kind of a lifetime negative impression on her that I forgot her name and that she's forgettable to Glenn, the salesperson. However, she probably forgot me. She goes back to her desk and goes, who was that guy that said hi to me in the hall? Oh, right. That's Glenn. Oh my God. He took the time to remember my name. And what have you see, there's the failover ringing and uh, sorry about that. Just interrupting the call, but uh, nonetheless, I will put that one to voicemail and phone them back. And so uh, you can see then these, these are how the rules, they all flow one after the other. I just do this and then I do this and then I do this. And um, yeah. Uh, So I'll take a breath and see if you have any questions or thoughts on the matter. And well, I just have, uh, I just have uh, one observation in this goes back a few minutes into that little tutorial you just gave us, which is awesome, is when you leave the voicemails, you send the emails, what have you, you use a phrase that when I heard it, I actually stood up and was doing the raise the roof gesture. Is oh, nice. It's where you said, it's where you said, and I'm paraphrasing you, how can I get on your schedule? Exactly. I love that phrase, particularly here in the 2020s. Let's look at the next thing is evolved. Okay. So a lot of people don't answer their phone, even if they're available to answer the phone. A lot of people don't listen to their voicemail. They'll text or email the person back saying, yo, I saw you called. What's up? And a lot of people don't pay for a receptionist anymore. So how do you get a hold of that person? I cover this actually pretty extensively in my book is you use a scheduling application. So when I want to connect with somebody, I use that phrase. I did this once and I actually got so many conversations out of it. I had to slow down. I was doing a pre-launch of something that I was inaugurating and I wanted to uh, raise some awareness of it by simply reaching out to some people I viewed as peers and said, hey, uh, I don't know if you saw my post, but I'm thinking about doing X and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. How can I get on your calendar for a quick chat? And you know, want to know what the number one response to that was? No. They didn't type a word to me. They just simply pasted their schedule link. Right. And the number two response was, sure, got a link. So right there, right there, by using that phraseology, you show that you not only respect the person's time, but you're leading with the assumption that they themselves are thoughtful, organized, and act intentionally. So therefore, they're not going to play phone tag with you. You respect that. They're not going to text with you for a million years. They re- you respect that. But you're getting right to the point of, okay, I know you're busy. How do I get 15 minutes with you? And if what you've said within that first 20 seconds or within those first five lines has caught their attention as you've designed it to, their response could be as simple as pacing their schedule link. And what do you do? You schedule a time, you confirm it, and then you reply, awesome, see you Tuesday at three o'clock. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Now, another thing is, and uh, I love the thing about the facts and somebody pointing out to you, you don't use fax machines anymore. Well, if you were to crack open my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy, and you go to the introduction chapter, the very first thing it's going to ask you is if you know the difference between sex education and sex training. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when you get to when you get to the first section of the book that's actually educational on a topic, it's about it's about a phenomenon known as white line fever applied to how we often miss typos in our own work. That entire section is just loaded with typographical errors to illustrate the point that we often miss them when we see the words that we're expecting to see. 
some publishing company got a hold of my book and my book was self-published. And they said, man, I, I, you know, we, we read your book and, uh, and we opened up to that, that uh, first section of the S chapter. And there, there were so many typos in it. We just put it down. Your, your book is sloppy and it's unprofessional. Nobody would ever publish it. And I happened to have a copy of it and I flipped to, okay, so, so this is right about here where you stopped reading. Does that sound about right? Yeah. So let's turn the page. And on the next page, you see the big Johnson box that says, now, how many typos did you notice? Send me an email with your guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, that. And, and the reason I bring that up, even though it may seem like it's off topic here, is simply that when you can make an impact very early on, you can steer the conversation you wanted to. Now, if I had made that first section, the one about the wine light, the white line fever, maybe one page shorter or a few paragraphs shorter, then I might have not gotten that really, really just off the wall feedback on it. However, at the same time, I designed the book in such a way where my entire lesson on, oh, look at all the typos was basically confined to two pages left and right. And then you turn the page, you get the punchline. If the punchline was on the same page, it wouldn't have the same impact. So no. it's a, um, so it's a, uh, a little bit of a uh, judgment call. So we're uh, actually not so far from the top of the hour here. And there's one thing I really want to get into is this whole thing of compromising. Uh, the salesperson can compromise to a point. And as you bring up in your book and in your teachings, there's a time when you stop negotiating and turn the dead end to your advantage. So for all of our listeners who have ever spontaneously offered a huge discount that they weren't planning on because they thought that would get them to a yes, what do you do about the compromising and the negotiating? Well, awesome. That's a great, that's a great way to, towards, as we head towards the end of this. So one, one of my favorite uh, chapters in the book and that I hear, I hear my staff members repeat all the time to other coworkers and whatever is my famous saying, freedom begins with no. And so, um, you know, what you often, what you often notice that, you know, when you're a sales manager, director of sales or what have you is that, you know, Sally's always coming in at full margin or slightly above making a little bit extra here and there. And Jack, he's always got lower margin on his deals always. And it's, they're selling the same item, you know, to the same type of customer. And why is Sally's always, uh, you know, right, at, right on point or slightly higher and Jack's always slightly lower. Right. And it's because the way they manage themselves in front of the customers and what have you. And, and of course, you know, one of them saying no sooner than the other one. Right. And um, you know, what, what I, what we often find is that a lot of times people are, they're with the customer, they've done the, the presentation, the demo, whatever's required in order to pitch your product. And the customer is now at the point you need them to get to where he's actually sort of self-closing, right? Like if you're, if, you know, the whole idea of closing coffees for closers, which I love that. And I talk about it in the book, but, you know, a true close is when the customer has been moved to a point of, of wanting your product so much that he's asking you how to buy it, right? And, uh -huh. but he may still like a good deal and he might be a good negotiator. And he's like, I never pay list. And I'm, you know, I always get a better deal. And no matter what he feels, you know, he feels that he get, should get a better price. Right. And so, um, you know, that's where you have to, you know, yeah, you need to understand your customer. You need to understand the situation and you, you need to be prepared to have the, you know, the resilience to stand up in the face of that. Right. So if, if, if he's the engineering manager and he always likes to get a discount and then he sends it to the buyer and the buyer is going to demand to get a discount, you know, that's your first opportunity to say, well, Jack, you know, you're asking for a discount. What's going to happen when it gets to purchasing? Like, are, aren't they going to want concessions as well? Well, well, maybe. Yeah. And I'm like, well, we can't be forced to be negotiating at every step of the way. Like, and, you know, and say, I'm sorry, like I can give you a discount here, but it's when it goes to the buyer, then that's going to be our final price. Or, you know, we can submit it to the buyer with enough room that they'll be happy and you can get the product that you're looking for. So how do, how do you suppose we're going to go ahead with this? But, you know, we're not going to be double discounting it. So everyone can sort of feel like they're getting a pound of flesh. Right. 
Um, the, the other situation in the, you know, the simplest of terms is you've, you've customers already beat you up. You've already given them one or two discounts that he needed and what have you, then you're, you know, it's like, that's fine. But, you know, I really, I talked to the thing and we're looking at such and such, and, you know, we're just going to need you to come down another 3%. And that's where the strong, strong minded person will say, you know, we, we've had several rounds of negotiation, you know, I've checked the lead time. We can meet your four week delivery if we get an order this week, but we, you know, knowing, knowing how competitive this was, we came in with our best price and we just don't have any more room to move on the price. And, and in order for us to meet your delivery deadline, we actually need an order in the next day or two. So, you know, do you want to move ahead with it? Whereas the, the weaker salesperson will say, knowing full well, the answer is no, they'll say, Oh, well, maybe let me talk to my boss. And, and for some reason, they're just putting off the inevitable no, which is the which is the thing that's required. And they come back, oh, he really wants another 3%. And of course, the sales manager says, no, you knew that going in. And then he calls back and he gives a more lame, weak approach. Oh, I talked to my sales manager and there's nothing more we can do. Rather than just to say no, right up front, right? And um, the... Um, you know, and I give the I give the example in my book, you know, which is sort of not not related to sales, but you know, when we were younger and kids would say, Hey, you know, do you want to go to the movies tonight? And you know, a kid would say, No, I can't afford it today. And I mean, people wouldn't argue with him and say, Yes, you could afford it. And like, right? They just move on, right? And and so I say, take that approach, you know. Just if you say your no such that in that same way, the customer is gonna know that it's true. And they're they're going to stop asking. But if you if you say yes or I'll try, then they will not stop until you've said no. So, and finally, the final thing is that is the freedom part. What do you mean freedom? Well, every time you say yes, the work goes back on you. You got to go to your boss. You got to beg for uh-huh. more, right? You got to worry about it. You got to stress that you're going to get in trouble for have, for not saying no. But the second you say no, your job's done. Now the stress moves on to the customer. How can I afford it? I want this product. I need this product, you know, and now he has to do his job and go ahead and try to, um, you know, do what he needs to do on his end in order to buy your product. Right. Yeah. I think there's something to that. And I got a lesson in this very early in my entrepreneurial journey. And I, uh, I'll even tell you who it was. It was, it was Mike Stewart, who's pretty well known in the online marketing space. I needed to learn how to edit videos and post them online. This was 2005. Uh, I had just gotten started. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know the softwares. I didn't know editing techniques or anything. And I asked around to a few people and they said, you got to get, you got to get Mike Stewart's course. You got to get Mike Stewart's course. So somebody gave me Mike Stewart's phone number and I called and lo and behold, he answered. Yeah, it was a really nice guy actually. And then it got to the part where Silly me thought to ask him if he could uh, give a new guy a discount. And he see, and he said, he said, you know, you you know, you 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 called you called me up here, and I'm and I'm very happy to speak with you. You seem like a nice guy. Um, I can already tell you're going places, and I really want to have your business. And I think that there could potentially be a bright future for us going both ways. However, I don't need your business. The price of the course is eight hundred ninety-seven dollars. Well, suddenly I had a way to come up with $897 and I bought it. Yeah. I still have that course, even though it's kind of outdated as far as the technology sells back during the FLV era. But I hold on to it because some of the techniques for editing as far as presentation are timeless. So I occasionally refer back to it. That's a good story. Yeah, and uh, the, and that was actually one of my first lessons in negotiation. How sometimes you just don't. I also saw a, a story. Uh, this was from somebody I met in an event where he he declared one of his milestones is he had purchased a classic Mustang that he had always wanted. He had reached a point of success in his business where he could buy that Mustang. So he found somebody who had the year the color, the, the engine option, all of it. It was his dream car, and he went and got that Mustang. Well, what happened immediately is in the comments on that post, he started getting all the questions about, well, what kind of negotiation did you do? And, uh, and uh, how much of a discount did you get? And what tactics did you use to save money on that Mustang? And he jumped in and said, oh, no, I didn't ask for any discount. He told me how much it was, and I paid it. 
because he restored that car. He put a lot of energy into that. He knew the value of what he was selling. It would have been disrespectful of me to try and get him to compromise on that. If I want the Mustang, I'll buy the Mustang, which really is a more elaborate version of if you can't afford a tip, don't go out to eat. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So we are at the top of our time here, and there's so much more that we can discuss. I think we might have touched on maybe two, two and a half, three of the 57 sales, it's 57 winning sales factors to grow a business and build a career selling that we can find in your book. And I do encourage everybody to visit your website. Go, go to www.glenpulos.com. For those of you who are, in fact, driving, biking, walking. Oh, there's a loud vehicle in the background there. Zoom. <laughs> I, told, I told you we're from the field. So for those of you who are out there and uh, need a spelled for you, it's G-L-E-N-N-P-O-U-L-O-S.com. If you are on our website, you can find the episode there and it's in the show notes. Click the link for book and you'll see the various retailers of the book is available. I'll be doing it myself. I cannot wait. So again, that's www.glenpulos.com and check out the book, Never Sit in the Lobby. Glenn, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor, believe me, in education. Thank you for having me, Adam. It's been awesome talking to you today. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.